Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Timing in sports, just like life, can take you to places that you never would think twice about. When one door of opportunity closes, do you have the courage to open another door? Today's conversation with former professional baseball pitcher turned family entrepreneur, Anthony Tomey, is focused on Anthony's story to take a risk and open up a new door of opportunity when he decided to end his professional sports career. Anthony dives into the details and complexities of running a family business with his dad, uncle, sister, and brother with all the challenges and opportunities it can bring. You hear on the news how COVID has wreaked havoc upon millions of small businesses. Still, in our conversation, you hear Anthony's firsthand accounts of how painful it was for him to make the decision to shut down his business for numerous weeks, and the challenges he continues to face with retaining and hiring employees, and how he's tried to keep his core team together. We talk about the transition Anthony went through from being an owner-operator as a single person to now as a husband and father of three boys all under the age of three. Anthony speaks candidly about the difficulties of managing the business needs while wanting to be present for his boys and the balance he seeks to try to make it all work together. Please enjoy my conversation with Anthony Tomey. Anthony, you and your family own a series of Jimmy Giants franchises. We have 50 stores, yeah. But I want to go back. I want to go back to your first career. Okay. Talk to me about being a professional baseball player. Well, I mean, it is what it sounds like. It was a great time in my life. I enjoyed every second of it. I mean, I would have done it for free, to tell you the truth. But the way you just play ball, you're with your buddies every day, the thrill, the excitement of the adrenaline rush you get every single day, like when you're out there, I wouldn't have traded for anything, obviously. Even just being able to be part of that and say, you're part of how many millions and millions of people play high school baseball or college baseball, not even just in the U.S., but worldwide. And to say you became, I was this close to getting up there with the 827 guys there are that actually make it. It's crazy. It was amazing opportunity, amazing experience. So you went to Eastern, right? Correct. So you played ball at Eastern, then you got drafted, right? Yeah, I was drafted out of high school, actually, by Cleveland, and I almost went. I had a full ride to school at the Eastern, and I just couldn't really turn that down with what they were offering. We offered me good money, but not good money as in for a high school kid. It's amazing, but good money. And now that I think about it, I've been like, well, I've been the dumbest guy of all time to take that deal. <laughs> but so then I got drafted by Detroit after East with Eastern and kind of went from there, signed immediately. A week later, I was up in Lakeland working out, and a week later, we were playing ball. And you were a pitcher, Correct. Correct. So what I know of Detroit's farm system, because I lived in Toledo, obviously the Mud Hens, there's Erie, which is double A. So did you go up through 
Erie and Toledo then? Yeah, all the way up to Toledo. I was in Erie for one and a half seasons. I was in West Michigan, Grand Rapids, Jody there for two years, which was awesome. We won a championship there in 04, back there in 05, was in Lakeland in 06, Erie in 07, and then 08, I was in Toledo. What was the tipping point when you decided, okay, this is not going to work. This is not going to be my full-time profession, if you will. What was that like? Because I mean, I read stories about other athletes and that's the hardest thing is like when you, that day comes when you decide that, okay, I've either got to move on because it's not working or I have to move on because of injury or something like that. I gave it a great shot. I mean, I wasn't a high round draft pick. I made it all the way up as far as it could go. I saw a lot of, we started the Jimmy Johns when I signed. So I was 21 years old and I had an unbelievable year in 07. I had a 190 ERA. I was getting calls from my pitching coach, who was the Tiger pitching coach, Jeff Jones, saying, we're trying to get you up here. Leland and I want you up here. You deserve it. But Dombrowski says, basically, he doesn't throw hard enough. He wants 95 to 100 out of the bullpen. I'm like, well, I thought the game was, you just get people out and you do well. But <laughs> yeah, it wasn't the case sometimes. And so basically, I just kind of looked at it. I was, I played in, you know, I had a great year in 07. I'm like, okay, oh, it's my year. I'm going to get up there do well. And I just never got the opportunity. And I had three stores at that point, building my fourth. And I was just like, well, I've seen a lot of guys just stick around here forever. And they always tell you, don't ever give up your jersey and make them take it off of you. And I was like, I think I can expand this business big time if I jump on board. My sister was still in teaching. My brother was still in high school. And I said, we got to do something with this. I think it can do big things. And I decided baseball was the best part of my life, but I have to move on and see what we can do. I just didn't see it happening. So let's now transition into where you're at today. And one, how did you get started selecting a Jimmy John's franchise? And number two, how did your sister and your brother get involved? Like, how did all three of you come together to do this? So it was kind of a crazy deal. My dad was a CFO for 30 years, same company. And they were trying to force him out. Just was too old. I brought some young bloods in and they cut his salary and all this. And he got upset, obviously. Like, I've been with these guys for 30 years. And then the young guys screwed up, lost them like 800K in three months. And they begged my dad to come back. My dad's like, I'm not doing this. Screw these guys. So he's like, let's do something. When I just signed, he's like, let's take your money. Let's still do something with it. And basically, we're Lebanese, we're Arabic. And he's like, let's buy a gas station. I'm like, no way. <laughs> I'm not becoming this guy. I don't want to for 24 hours a day. He's like, how about like a subway? I'm like, no, subway's garbage. Let's eat Jimmy John's in school. Let's bring it to the suburbs. And at that point, only Royal Oak had just opened in 2002. And then we built in 2003, the first store in Novi. And thank God we did. If we didn't, we would have missed. If we waited one more year, we would have lost all of our territory probably. Because Jimmy John just blew up after we came in. So it was just amazing timing. So I'll interject a real quick story on my half is I got to remember the year. Teresa and I actually went down to Champaign to Jimmy John's headquarters because we were looking at putting a franchise actually in Toledo. Wow. But I ended up deciding to do more like a UPS franchise, which didn't work. And I always wonder what Jimmy John's would have been like. The funny thing was, is why we decided not to, was Teresa just looked me in the eyes and she's like, Paul, 
I just don't see myself getting up at five o'clock in the morning to go into the store to slice meat every day. <laughs> it's a grind, Paul. We worked really, really hard for a long time until we had kind of expanded everything and became who we are today. But it took a lot of hard work, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, a lot of trust. You have to trust these kids with a half a million dollar investment on every single sort. You just have to start building trust with people. You learn to not be able to micromanage them, not do every single thing on your own, delegate things, and it eventually comes through for you. To circle back on that, when you guys started, so you guys started off as a family affair, like your dad sounded like he was kind of leading the charge and then your brother and sister were brought in as well. It was actually my dad, my uncle and I, my dad was the money guy, the smart, he never made a sandwich in his life and nor should he, he just, he was the numbers guru, number genius. My uncle, Tony, my dad's brother owned a landscape, well, very successful landscaping company, but was working six days a week from 6am to 9pm every day. I'm like, listen, quit this. Let's go try this. He's, it's a big leap of faith to be able to do that. He was making respectable money, not like tons, but respectable enough for him and his wife. And he had just got married and just had a kid and took a huge gamble. And and you were 22 at the time? Yeah, I was 21 years old. Pretty craziness. And I was running the stores. So I was running stuff from my computer in the locker rooms. And guys are asking me, what the hell are you doing? What's going <laughs> on? What's the Jimmy John's? And they all kind of laughed. Like, what are you doing, man? You got to just focus. I'm like, listen, I'm focused on baseball, but this is my side gig right now. And boom, ended up being a lot better deal for me. So how long did you balance starting the Jimmy John's franchise while you were still playing? The whole time. So how many years? Six and a half years. Six and a half years. Wow. So what was that like? (laughs) It was nuts, man. I was drafted in June of 2003. We opened Grand River Novi store in August of 03. Came home Literally, the day I walked in the door, I walked in the store and I started making sandwiches. I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never even made a sandwich before. I started making subs. I was working. So I literally worked every single day my whole life from that point on. Because as soon as I got home, I started working at Jimmy John's and doing things, trying to get new locations. And that's what I was doing a lot during baseball. I was trying to develop new locations, see how everything was going. And my uncle Tony was the one running the store physically. But it was a tough balance for sure. So you're playing ball. So baseball runs from spring to late February till September. And then, so in the off season, you just came back and focused on running the stores then? Yeah. I mean that, and I would just have to work out once or twice a day, every day. And I was going downtown. I was working out with Nate Robertson. I don't know if you remember him. He was, oh, yeah. he was the only guy that stayed local during the off season. So him and I would go downtown Detroit every day and work out the facilities. And we had our personal trainer for the Tigers. Denny Haft was down there as well. So he was just kicking our butts every day, which is great. Do it seven o'clock in the morning, two hours, shower, head to the store, work all day, do whatever. And it just became routine for me, I guess. Wow. We're going to transition into your current family life. But that's the one thing I always remember, like keeping up with that schedule, like when you're single is definitely different than like when you're married and have <laughs> little kids now. It's a lot of different deal, man. It's definitely a lot more on my plate. How did things start taking off? So you built the first store in Novi, and then how long was it until you added your second store? It took us about a year and a half, almost two years. 2006, we opened the second store. And then 2007, we opened the third store. 2008, we opened the fourth. And then we kind of just blew up. After 08, everything kind of went down. The economy went down, scared. And I just kind of saw opportunity at that point. 
to get in cheap places. And I felt like if anything was going to survive, it was going to be like a quick service restaurant like this that serves good food, not like greasy, whatever. It's just it's a nice sandwich and people got to eat no matter what. So for five bucks, this might be the deal. And then we just started blowing up two or three stores a year, every year. And then we went from 2008 to 2018, we built 20 stores. And then in 2019, we bought 27 extra. In 2019, you bought 27? Yeah. So the franchise model with Jimmy John's, did you guys have to like buy like a territory? Walk us through like, how does that work? So you have to buy a territory, you have to put down $30,000 and say, this is mine. And it's not necessarily like the whole city is yours. It's like, oh, I own nobody. Yeah, you kind of do. You have the first refusal. But if you don't put down that money, Paul could come in and grab it if he wanted to until you get to a certain point. And then you, once I get to like eight, 10 stores, they're like, whatever you want is yours within your area. I kind of built a box around my stores. I went Novi, tip of Novi, like Walled Lake. And then I went to Plymouth. Then I went to South Lion and then Commerce. So my five stores were like a big box and I kind of built within there and then just kind of started expanding from there. As far as like a store location goes, what's the, I guess, proximity between stores? Like you try to keep five miles between a store, 10 miles between a store. Is there's like some rule of thumb with that? I mean, there was for a while, it was a few miles. I mean, four miles is pretty good. But then Jimmy John's encouraged us to start building like closer. So we did, we made a couple of mistakes with that. Ended up being okay, but they called it clustering. And they wanted us to put stores closer together and not have any gaps in between delivery areas and all this. And then that kind of backfired. So we did a couple of them. We did two extra that we probably shouldn't have maybe done, but they actually ended up being pretty good stores as well. I put two in Canton, both on Michigan Avenue, one at Haggerty, one at Beck, both drive-throughs on opposite sides of the road. <laughs> oh, wow. Store was my number six store. It was a six store and it was awesome. 1.1, 1.2 million a year. And then I built the other one down the street. And actually that store is actually better, Michigan and Beck store. So it kind of helped out a little bit, but it definitely put us, now we know not to do that, obviously. It's not a great idea. If I go back from that 10-year stretch from 08 to 18, when you said you guys built 20 stores, what was that process like? And is it just you and Uncle Tony and your dad still, or is your brother and sister on it at this point? No, and brother and sister on it as well. Basically what it is, is my sister was a teacher and she went and got her master's degree. And then once she did that, we're like, listen, she was working out in Gross Point, a great university at Liggett and great school, but she lives in Novi. Drove to Gross Point for $32,000 a year. We're like, well, we'll pay you $32,000 a month if you just come on board here. So she did. And my brother was always going to be involved, but he's just eight years younger than me. So we made him graduate. He worked for us since he was 14, illegally, obviously. But he's been working forever. And we said, you can't become anything until you graduate. We'll pay you 10 bucks an hour. And that's it. That's all you get. And we were putting money away for him for everything as well. But once he graduated college, it was game on. So we promised today. They, at the end of the day, obviously, we paid more to them than a normal person that would do their same job. But that's my brother and sister. They're never going to leave us. And we thought it would be a good thing eventually. And it has been. It's been great. And as much as we only heard a lot of horror stories about family businesses going wrong, and we have our arguments. But at the end of the day, we all know what our role is in the company. And that kind of helps, I think. I was just going to go there, my next question, because as I've gotten to know you over the years through Brett and Jody, and I've kind of learned about 
your family and all the stores that you guys own. That's always been a question in my mind. I'm like, well, how the heck do they all get along? And I'm sure that there's times when you have disagreements and times when you do agree, but can you walk us through those dynamics or did you just hit the nail on the head where everybody knows their role and you guys just execute? Listen, no, I'd be lying to say everything's beautiful every day, but it is. It's a good thing. Like basically what we do is my dad's kind of out now. He advises us and he consults and he'll look at numbers if we need him to, but he's kind of out of the mix. He's 75 now. The COVID thing kind of just put him out. He loved to come to the office just to go to the house and stay young and sharp. And that's kind of really pushed him back. Now he's very scared to get it. He's got type one diabetes and he gets it. That's game over. But we've always had our roles. Like my sister does all the HR, all the, because I'm probably the worst HR person in history, HR nightmare personally, (laughs) things I say, (laughs) but she does that. She does the insurance and the bills and all that kind of stuff. My brother, Michael does all the financial stuff. He does all the P&Ls and all those things. Tony is in charge of like maintenance. And then we all work in the stores as well. And then I do all the operational. I'm kind of like the everything kind of guy. I have handled most of the operations, the employees, decisions within the stores and stuff like that. And then I do all the leases, deal with the landlords, all those things. I'm kind of like the face. So my question is probably more geared towards the negative aspect of being a family together, but there's got to be something really cool about working with your dad and your brother, your sister, your uncle, having it be a family affair. Like, yeah, there's things that go bump in the night, but when you look back at it, I mean, you wonder, would, would I have done it any different? Like, I would have wanted my family with me on this journey. 100%. I mean, yeah, we're going to have our fights here and there. Mostly they're with our dad than with each other. Because you know, our dad's old school, super, super conservative and just doesn't want to, he thinks that we just need to keep millions of dollars in the bank waiting to do it. We actually, we didn't really learn until we bought this new company of how to use our money properly. We used to just pay everything as soon as possible and not let our money work for us, which is also a great thing because we didn't have any debt. But now we kind of understand that, man, we can use our money to utilize it and let it work for us. But we definitely have some fights here and there. Like right now, my sister just had twins. And she's been out for four months. Obviously, we're not going to be like, you know, get paid. But like, there's things that aren't getting done. Dad, take up that slack. And that's never been an issue before because we all started, we were all single when we first started. So now it's been a little bit different because we're all married now. We all have kids. And it's definitely put a different dynamic into things. Like this year is different because no one went on vacation anywhere. But there's vacations. There's different things you do. But now I think we're in a better spot as well. We have more capable people in the upper management level for us that can take care of things and not worry about it. So we're going to want to swing back to two things you just talked about, more family dynamics and this new business. But I think I want to stay on Jimmy John's because one of the things that I keep a pretty close pulse on in the area and nationwide too, is just how these small businesses like yours are doing through COVID. So walk us through like what it was like going back to March, like when the shutdowns first started happening and walk us through like, how did you guys handle that? What happened with your employees? And then how's it been to ramp back up? Because this whole starting and shutting down, I think is, I think we all get it from a safety perspective, but I have family office clients that have their own businesses and I see the struggles. I know people like you personally, and I know I haven't talked to you in a while, but I know that you guys have probably struggled with it. So kind of 
walk us through what this last eight months or nine months has been with COVID. It's been the hardest thing we've ever had to do, for sure. Closing the stores was the hardest decision we ever made. We looked at it, we were blind. I'm blind leading the blind, I guess, at this point. Everybody, no one knew what it really was. Everyone was scared. Everyone was like, you got it, you're done. Game over, you're going on a ventilator, that's it. So we kind of had, our employees were getting scared. After the next week, by that first week of March, we were doing like $45,000 a day. And I was like, this is not sustainable. Let's just shut it down. Let's get everyone safe, see what happens. We were prepared as a family to not take any money this entire year. We're like, we got to just save the business, do what we got to do. And then things started slowly coming back and we had to make a decision that, hey, let's, we got to open. We got the PPP money, which was huge on that second round of PPP. So once we got it, we opened the stores and the first couple of days were very slow. And then just boom, it just blew up. But at the same time, we were losing tons of employees because of the unemployment benefits. The 600, they're making 900 bucks a week. You were a classic example of, because I talked to other businesses that were like this, that experienced this. You were the example where that unemployment hurt you guys because people were making more on an unemployment than they were making sandwiches. They're making $900 a week. Those kids, my normal, just hourly employees couldn't make that. They made that in like a month. So, and not that we pay less. They just don't want to work. They're only working 15, 20 hours a week. It was very tough. We kept losing people, losing people, losing people because they were cheating the system. I mean, they were just, even though we would deny their unemployment, we would say, hey, listen, we brought them back. They didn't want their job. They were still getting their money. And so it was a really big deal with that. So we just weren't able to, we couldn't keep anybody. (laughs) It was so hard. We have 17 people between the owners, the upper management, our area managers, our floating guys, and we still couldn't, 17 extra people that don't have to be in the stores every day. And we still couldn't feel the team to successfully like operate at that point. So in March, you guys made the decision to shut all the stores down? Correct. And how long were you guys shut down for? Six weeks. And then when you guys came back up, was it mainly like delivery or people coming into the store? Or I know some of your stores are drive-through, which probably really helped. The way it worked was it was really crazy. So my best stores were Novi, Plymouth, Auburn Hills, which is on OU campus, and then downtown Detroit, three of my best stores. And those stores went down quickly. Like Detroit is just legit ghost town. My best stores throughout this last eight months have been Brighton, South Lyon, New Hudson, Madison Heights, just drive through stores that just kill it. Just, I mean, up a hundred percent. It's insane. We couldn't staff it. We couldn't do anything. We just would just get bombarded every single day. It was crazy. Livery was huge as well, obviously. So how did you guys handle it? Is it just you do the best you can and people like maybe moan or groan or complain, but you just kind of explain them like, look, this is... That's it. We're doing the best we can. And the labor shortage is no joke. That's been a key component or key issue. I guess under normal circumstances, like before COVID, how many people did you guys employ? Like how big was the business? When we first bought the new company... We were over 800 employees. And by February of last year, we were like 7, 725, somewhere in there. And now we sit about 525, 530. So we're down about 175, 200 employees. And have you actually had to shut locations down because of staffing? Certain days we did, we'd have to make a choice and we were like super short and be like, okay, listen, this is our worst performing store lately. We'll just close it for the day. 
we'd rather utilize those two employees that they have elsewhere to make us more money. So we had to do that several times a week, pretty much, <laughs> to make things happen. But thankfully, business-wise, was not bad. We were down 4 or 5%. And that was with probably eight or nine stores doing literally nothing. Detroit, Southfield, and Troy, which are heavily populated with the large businesses, which aren't open, obviously, they were getting hit. Like Detroit was like a three to $4,000 a day lunch. Now they do a thousand for the day, maybe. And same with Southfield and same with Troy. It was definitely difficult. But the other guys picked up the slack pretty well for us, thankfully. And we're able to stay within our numbers even from last year. So two questions. How are you able to retain your current staff? And two, how are you guys able to attract new people to come on board? It's been tough. We lost a lot of key people. We lost some area manager. A lot of it was just because they were working so hard and not even so hard. It was just there were every day, this guy called off, this girl called off, Billy can't come in. He's not working today. He sneezed. So he thinks he has COVID and he's going to be gone for two weeks. It became ridiculous. It really did. And there wasn't a day that we couldn't catch our breath. It was really, really tough. We lost some key people, but a lot of the people are very loyal. Thankfully, we've had our number one guys, Adam, he's been with us for 16 years. Our next two people have been with us for 12 years. All of my area guys have been with me for over 10. My manager has been with us a long time. So they kind of knew what was going on. We definitely took care of them. I was giving these guys bonus all the time. I never cut anybody's salary. Just giving money out of our pockets, giving days off, giving some stuff here and there, and just kind of believing that we were working. It's not like we were sitting in the office clapping for them. We were delivery driving, making sandwiches. All of us were. I think they saw that and appreciated that we were doing that with them and that they still had a job. And then recruiting new people has been virtually impossible. They'll come, most of them fill out applications just to try and stay in unemployment. They're, oh yeah, I, I went and then they, I'll take the job. They never show up, not even a call and they ghost you and leave it. So it's been very, very tough. We've had to definitely got shakedown a few times for some money. Like, hey, I'm, if you don't give me this, I'm leaving to Target or I'm doing this. And because everyone's willing to pay whatever to get employees at this point. Sometimes I do it. Sometimes I said, well, go ahead, do your thing. So it's been rough. <laughs> We're starting to get a little bit here and there, but not as much as we would hope. So with the bill that just got passed literally like last night with them extending the unemployment benefits, I think it's the $300 versus the $600 it was back in the spring. Do you think that's going to continue to have a negative impact on trying to get people in? It probably will, just because the caliber of employee that we employ would make around that. Maybe they wouldn't. Maybe they make less. So they're okay sitting home, doing whatever they do on the side, and just collecting. It's really a tough, tough deal. We don't know those people that are making $75,000 a year that are now living on the 600 bucks a week. I don't really know those families and those people, and I feel awful for them. I do. Our employee makes... 10, 12, 15, 12, 13 bucks an hour. That's for them is to say, why would I work for 300 a week when I can make 600 a week? It just, I get it, but I don't get it because I'm just, I have to work. I'm that guy. I'm not a sit at home. I've sat home for those couple of weeks with my wife and kids and <laughs> I was go going to the office every day. I was going to the office every day just to go check on stuff. I think that's a good next point to pivot into is we've kind of talked about 
what it was like with this COVID, which I think is interesting because I wanted to have you on to explain to people as a business owner, like what it's been like, because I don't think people necessarily get that. They just want to drive through or want to get their sandwich delivered or go whatever they want to do like normal life, which we all want. But I think there's a subset of the community, such as people like you that have these smaller businesses that employ a lot of people that are really the backbone of our communities. And I think you all have to be acknowledged. And that's why I greatly appreciate you coming on and sharing some very intimate thoughts and details about your business. So when I talk about family, you mentioned your sister just had twins. Somehow I forgot that Rita was pregnant with your guys' third because I only (laughs) thought you had the two. But now you bring the new boy in. What? He was born in August, you said? Yeah, he was born July 3rd. So you've got three under the age of three now. Yeah, I got a three-year-old, a one-and-a-half, and a four-month-old. <laughs> so talk about what it's been like if you go back to the journey of when you and Rita, and by the way, for audience, Rita is Anthony's wife. So go back to like when you and Rita met and you guys get married and start having family. Like, How did that change you personally and the interaction with trying to run the business on a daily basis? Because obviously we all know you could spend as many hours as you want in the office and working, but then when you start that family, it changes overnight. It changes a lot. And I'm very lucky. Obviously my wife is great. She gave up her career. We decided that before we got married. We're like, listen, if we get married, we have kids you're going to stop working. We need to, I want you to raise the kids. And she's like, yeah, yeah. We come from old school backgrounds. My wife is Keldean. So we come from very family oriented, old school ways. And that's been great. That's been a huge thing for us to be able to do. And it's been tough. I mean, one was when Anthony was little, Anthony was born. It was all right, cool. I have a kid now. I'm still going to work, do my thing. And I come home at six o'clock and I got dinner and the kid's there and he sleeps. It's easy. Now that you have three and they're growing up a little bit and Anthony is a maniac, (laughs) Nicholas is walking, you got two walking all over the place. You have to be able to put that aside and say, I got to go home. I got to take care of these kids. I got to see these kids. And I'm very lucky that my wife comes from a family that always worked their whole life. They're very successful people. And their dad was a 24 hour guy as well. So I get phone calls even when I'm home. It's I never stop working. I'm getting calls. I'm getting texts. I'm checking on things. And she gets that. She just understands that. And it's tough sometimes that when the boys are like, hey, dad, come play with me. And I do. And my phone rings. I go take it for a second. They're like, oh, come on, man. I'm like, I'm sorry. I have to find that balance. It's been tough. We haven't been able to go anywhere, go on vacation, do stuff like that. But that also comes with the you have three. What are you going to do with three kids on a plane? I highly suggest you don't try that if yes, you haven't yet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I will not be doing that anytime soon. So it's been a definitely a tough adjustment just for Rita and I as well. I mean, she's dead tired when I get home. Like these kids just wear her out. She's tired and she kind of just does here. When I walk in the door, I eat dinner and then I play with the boys, give them a bath, put them to bed. I do a lot of that stuff just because I'm not home with them in the morning. Very often. I see them in the morning before I leave, but I'm gone all day. So it's a tough transition. Then this year with COVID, usually I don't work in the weekends unless we have something big going on for a little bit. But we were so short staffed that I was working every Saturday for sure, maybe Sunday. And that's my time. I spent a lot of time with the boys and we can't go anywhere. Like we take them to the park in the summer every day, but 
you can't do much with them. Nowhere cool to take them. Can't go to the jumpy houses and all this stuff. So it's been a tough transition. Anthony's school, we put him in school at three this year for the first time. He was doing amazing, loved it. And then they shut down two weeks ago and they're shut down until January 11th. So he needs to be in school. He's a nine to four school guy. Now he's all day just breaking stuff. That's a tough transition to go from being in school and the social environment. Because I think as I tell people, because they ask, what's been the toughest part about having the triplets and our plus one is to me, it comes down to structure. Teresa and I cannot provide our kids the structure that they would normally get in a school setting. It's just no way. It's not happening at home. And God bless teachers because that's obviously a profession that I could never handle either. But I want to go back to one thing you touched on. It's like a lot of the families I work with, you have dual career, whether both spouse and partners work. And that alone puts a lot of strain on relationships. And when you're married to an entrepreneur like yourself, and I know Teresa brings this up all the time to myself and to her friends, like, you don't understand what it's like being married to a business owner, an entrepreneur. It's like a totally different world. And it does put a lot of additional strain and pressure on relationships, marriage, partnerships. How does that work between you and Rita? I mean, you just close as much or little as you want, but I think it's important for people to know that you are taking time trying to make time for each other. Because I know that's what Teresa and I try to do. We're not always very successful at it, but we acknowledge it and we try. It's not easy. I mean, we're very, very blessed and lucky that both our parents live three miles and four miles from our house. And that's kind of, we. I try to take her out to Northville. That's where I wanted to live. I thought it would be great. And she's like, no, we got to stay in the Arabic bubble over there, West Bloomfield. So, and I was kind of against it, but I was like, now it's nice to see it. It makes a lot more sense. So we kind of have like a built-in babysitter system, which we utilized a lot early, but now lately, both of our parents can't really leave the house. They're very scared kind of for the whole COVID thing. So it's been really tough now, but before we'd go out Friday night or Saturday night, we have dinner, go out with our friends, do stuff. We're blessed that we have a pool at our house. So in the summer, we everyone was at our house all the time, bring the kids over, going to pools because all public pools were closed. We were really lucky with that. And nobody caught COVID at our house. So that was nice, but it's not easy. It is not easy. And especially now with the kid, not just with the business. I don't have, a, like I said, we're not, both of us are not nine to five guys. Turn it off at five o'clock. It goes all, I mean, two in the morning, I'll get calls and texts and whatever the case. So it's not an easy thing to do. You have to have a very understanding partner and just be like, hey, this is a temporary thing. At some point, we're going to be able to do a lot more when we sell this company or if we band even more and then do other things. And I don't do anything without asking her or talking to her about it and being like, hey, this is the benefit, I believe. And she's all about it. Again, she comes from a family of entrepreneurs and people that work. We have that Arabic mindset of you just bust your butt as hard as you can, as long as you can, and good things will happen. And so I'm lucky in that aspect where there's not, she doesn't expect me to come home at four o'clock just for fun. She knows I got to go to work. I got to do things, make things happen. And or else our lifestyle would be a lot different if I didn't. I know I want to pivot back to one of the questions we haven't talked about was your next business adventure, but where do you see you guys going with the Jimmy John's franchises? Is there more room for expansion or do you guys feel like you're tapped out? Like how long do you go? Does somebody else like sweep in and buy you guys out or how does that work? That's the hope. That's the hope. <laughs> we're not afraid to keep expanding. At this point, we're at 50. 
we doubled the company overnight. So we're at 50. So what's 20 more? It's really it's just a matter of grabbing a few extra hands, top hands, upper management people. The background work is not difficult to do anymore for us. So we understand how it works. So yes, our end game is to definitely sell the company to a private equity or something of that nature. But at the same time, you hear good and bad. You hear people like, oh, sell that thing, man. You'll make so much money. You'll do awesome. But what do you do after? Exactly. People don't understand how it works. Somewhat similar. I had that conversation with a lot of people that are getting closer to retirement. And especially like my type A personality folks, they've had a very successful career. It's probably somewhat similar to your dad. It's like people, I think, have this vision of retirement that they're going to flip a switch and then like you're going to play golf or tennis or whatever you want to do all day, every day. And it's not like that. And you have to begin preparing for that transition many, many years before it actually happens. And so I'm glad that you bring that up and recognize that because as I've gotten to know you, obviously, I can't see you just flipping a switch. I mean, you're going to want to keep doing something. It's that competitive nature in you as well. It is. And you know what? People don't understand. Like, As much as you'll make, yes, I would sell this company for a lot of money. I really would. And we divvy out stuff. Obviously, you lose a ton in taxes. Well, now with with Biden saying my capital gains tax is going to go up too. But whatever the case, at the same time, we have a $35, $36 million company. I would rather pay some people up top, some heavier guys, some heavy hitters. There's more money. Keep running this thing because you would never make this kind of money. And and you just can't. It's not replaceable. So much as I want to sell and the hassle and all that, sometimes you just got to rethink your way and be like, well, what am I doing? Why would I do that? Where do you find that residual income every single? Then I can also do other stuff like my vodka. I have some real estate now as well. I have a couple of real estate places right now, a couple of plazas we run, looking at some apartment stuff. There's a lot of things I can pivot to and do on the side and give up a little bit of salary, a little bit of my money from the company here to pay good people to take care of stuff. And so there's a double-edged short either way. Yeah, it'd be awesome to be wash my hands of this and be like, okay, I busted my butt for 20 years on this. I'm done. Here you go. But I'm 39 years old. What am I going to do with it? We're relatively very young people still, even though you're about ready to that 40 mark. <laughs> I can't wait two, three more years. I'm going to start coaching these kids and taking them everywhere. So having a business like this that I don't have to necessarily be there every single day is a blessing that you can have that kind of money coming in and not have to be physically active every single day. I can take my kids anywhere I need to take them, coach every single thing they do. And that's kind of what I want to do. I was kind of hoping to be never retired, but out of the game a little bit by 41, 42 years old, two, three more years. So talk to us about this next venture that you're getting into with the vodka. (laughs) I don't know what I'm getting into. (laughs) I don't know. It was a very freak out of nowhere thing. We, my brother and I were meeting with another friend of ours, George, and he, we were doing a fundraiser for our church and we were asking for some, my buddy George owns a travel company. He said he was going to give us a trip to Greece, which is awesome. It was the number one prize. And his buddy was going to give us some good memorabilia, signed memorabilia from the Lions and Red Wings. He's very well connected. So we go meet him up and he's like, he brings out this random bottle of vodka. He's like, hey, this is my buddy's vodka. I'm like, oh, cool. He's like, yeah, he's looking to sell it. Sell it for what? And he's like, yeah, he's just kind of done with it. And it wasn't the one I bought. And we investigated it and we're like, hey, this is not a bad deal for a couple hundred grand. It'd be awesome. But then we realized 
that's way overpaying. We found this other company called Eight Mile Vodka. Sounds kind of ghetto, but <laughs> actually very, very premium vodka. We tried it. We liked it. Met the owners that had done deal. So we ended up buying Eight Mile Vodka and the trademark born in Detroit, which is kind of cool. Wow. I didn't know that you guys got that trademark. We're actually coming out with some apparel. We're coming out with some really, really nice stuff. Some Eight Mile shirts and hats and sweatshirts and born in Detroit, which we're trying to. We're meeting with all these local companies like Ford, Chrysler, GM, Carhartt, like the Red Wings, the Tigers, all that stuff, any of these Fago. And we're going to have Born in Detroit on the shirt and then maybe their logo on it, give them piece of the money and just kind of blow this thing up. I think I think it's going to go real well for us. So you've got the vodka company going now and you also mentioned you're beginning into real estate. So you're going to continue this streak of entrepreneurship, if you will, and building companies and giving back to the community. I've learned through just talking with people and seeing everybody is that the most successful people have their train. This is where it's going. This is their big boy right here, the Jimmy Johns. But they also have piece here, piece there, piece of this, piece of that. And those are guys that are going to have residual income coming from these other places where I've been obviously blessed that I have a couple dollars to invest. And it does me no good making 14 cents a month in my bank account. So you got to get it out there and do other things. And God forbid it. I mean, this thing scared the hell out of everybody. I'm sure this pandemic, you could have lost your business in a six month span, which a lot of people unfortunately have. And I didn't know what Jimmy Jumps was going to come to, but I mean, it could have gone down really quickly if you have all your eggs in one basket. And so I think this kind of just expanding my horizons here a little bit was definitely a smart move. And I'm encouraging a lot of people to do that and partnering with different people. My, my brother-in-laws are big real estate guys. So we do a lot of the real estate with them. And then this was with my brother and then my other buddies. So I'm just trying to expand things and get things moving in different directions and hopefully eventually just keep expanding. So I know I only have you for a finite period of time, I should say. So as we kind of get to the end of the conversation, as you know, with me, my business is really focused on families. And I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on and talked about your story, your family, your new family with the boys and Rita. So my closing question that I ask all of my guests is, what is the one thing that you like most or love the most about being a parent? And I mean, hopefully the most rewarding stuff comes a little bit later because it hasn't come yet, but no, I'm just <laughs> kidding. I love it when I come home from work every day and these kids like dead sprint to me and you're literally responsible for three people. They literally cannot live without you. And it's crazy to think that after all these years and see all my buddies, most of my good friends like Brent and my, they all got married a lot earlier. They had kids earlier. I used to go watch their games and hang out and throw them around and do whatever. And now that I'm able to do the same thing with my kids and to see what really what my dad did. My dad never missed one game in my life. Baseball, basketball, football, travel baseball, Ohio, Florida, Arizona, California, Texas, Tennessee, anywhere I went, he never missed one game from seven years old until pro ball. Never. And I was a pitcher. I only played one game. In college, you go to Texas, I'd pitch game one and I'd sit there, but that's, he never missed a game. I just kind of want to pass that on. Even today, my dad goes yesterday, we have Monday night, we go swimming with Anthony. Wednesday, there's soccer. Saturday, we have baseball. He's three. My dad goes to every one of them. Like it's just 
that's kind of what I want to be. And I want to be in their life and guide them kind of the way my dad guided me and just make them understand that, give them a good life, but understand that they're not giving them anything. Everything's got to be earned. You're going to have to work, do all this stuff and just get them a good background. So they're good people. You see a lot of kids these days that are just, they want everything for free, everything given to them. And I just will not let that happen to my kids. Hopefully. I mean, hopefully that's kind of the way we bring them up into not making them, it's understanding that nothing is given to you. The harder you work, the luckier you're going to get in life. That's kind of how I've always lived my life, really. Well, Anthony, I think that's the best way to close up our conversation. I can't thank you enough for being on the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast. I think the listeners are going to get a lot of joy and insight into your experience, both from business standpoint and a family. And I can't wait to see where your business has continued to head and you continue to expand. So thank you so much for being on the show today. And I'm sure that we'll be talking soon. Thank you again, Paul. This was great. It was a lot of fun. Hopefully we'll see you soon. And thanks again for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.